This is the Pingdom Podcast for June 1st, 2012. Welcome back to the Pingdom Podcast. It's the first one for June 2012. We've just passed into June. It's the first day of June for this year. I'm joined by my co-host, Nikolai Soling. He's Director of Technology Services at a company called Help AG in Dubai. Um, thanks for joining me again, Nikolai. What have you been up to? It's been a little while since we recorded. Anything? Yes, that's, that's correct. Well, you know, last week I learned uh, a brand new word, which is flame. Uh, well, I know the word flame, but uh, flame or viper or, you know, there's a new virus in, in, in town and it's definitely getting a lot of attention from the different kind of both news and also uh, from the vendors. So that's quite interesting. We're going to talk a bit about it today as well. Well, well let, let's uh, pick up on that right away, since you mentioned it. What, what is it? I've seen the headlines. I, I think a lot of listeners have also probably read about it. Uh, what's so new about this? We, we hear about new viruses and Trojans and stuff all the time. So what's special about this one? Yes. So um, without being an expert on what Flamo does, but um, um, it's, it's very sophisticated. What the the, the reading that I've done on the system on, on the on the virus yet, it looks like it's a very very sophisticated uh, new virus, or let's or let's call it a virus framework instead, because that's really what it is. It's a way and a framework for how to use some vulnerabilities on the different kind of platforms to install a highly sophisticated malware or virus. Um, and what's very interesting about it is that it's actually been around for quite a long time. So the first, uh, again, Symantec, they have released some very, very interesting research on this. So I can, we're, we're going to post the URL for that right now uh, after the show. But um, again, Symantec, they, uh, they've, they've done some, some very, very good research on this. They saw the first, uh, so all the antivirus vendors, they have these honeypot networks where they get uh, or they, they try to get uh, specific uh, 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 virus samples from, and uh, they saw the first samples back in September 2010, so a long, long time ago, but they couldn't really figure out what was this. It looked a bit like Stocksnet, it looks like bit, uh, it looks like a variation of Stocksnet, so that's the, the umbrella that it went under, and then what they've seen is more and more information on this specific malware um, up until uh, uh, actually here, end of May, where they could actually really identify that this was a brand new uh, virus or malware attack framework, very much in in in, in line with the um, with the Stuxnet uh, or Duku uh, framework. So I even heard some rumors yesterday that that this specific framework has been around for five years and got, been completely stealth from the antivirus vendor's perspective. They haven't had any kind of, uh, of visibility of this for the last five years. And that's, of course, very interesting. So how could that happen? How, how could something like this be out there but not noticed? Well, first of all, because the infection rates are very, very low. So it looks like the um, attack, uh, attacks are targeted against very, very specific countries. And in areas of the world where the antivirus vendors do not have the proper um, uh, honeypot uh, capabilities. So these honeypots that I'm talking about is typically an antivirus vendor like Symantec installing equipment at large universities, at large um, uh, internet uh, communication points, 
and then they're pulling off uh, binaries for analysis of the uh, real traffic. And they do not have that kind of capabilities in the Middle East, and that's really where the code seems to be active. Also, the relatively low number of infections. Today, we're looking at about 500 to 1,000 clients that's that's infected worldwide. That's the assumption from uh, from the antivirus vendors right now. But of course, they do not know. Uh, it could be a much much higher number if it's really that stealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's quite interesting. Most of the antivirus vendors, they have already released uh, signatures for the known variations of, um, of, um, of Flamer. So if you have a, an antivirus from Symantec, McAfee, or you know any of the known vendors, Sophos, Kaspersky, or whatever it might be, they already have specific signatures for that specific uh, variation out there. Mm-hmm. But the interesting is, of course, if the virus is polymorphic or the malware is polymorphic, which means that it changes all the time. And looking at the sophistication of this framework, I could easily imagine that it's 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 able to do that. So, just to give an understanding of the of the sophistication of the framework is that um, the DLL files associated to the virus, for instance, it can control something like your video camera, your microphone system uh, on the on the system. Um, so, it, it's quite advanced, and it's also using encrypted communication back to the uh, to the command and control traffic centers so that's where a, a, a malware will communicate in order to to send data to the people who own that malware sure so so definitely quite interesting okay well a lot of good stuff about flame i think i found the, the link to it semantic they have some uh, they have a map showing the how it's spread as well and different things so yeah there will be a link to that in the show notes, so if you're listening to this, you should be able to go to go get that on royalpingdom.com. Um, that also brought to my mind a, a probably good topic for a future show, this thing about polymorphic and what is that and how, how do you actually detect a virus or how do the, the security vendors like Symantec, etc., detect viruses and Trojans and things. That's sure. something maybe yeah. we can throw in for a future show. That's a uh, very good idea. So let's um, leave Flame behind and just briefly get into a few other things. You, you found an article that says that for antivirus, 64-bit is actually worse than 32-bit. That doesn't sound very good, since, especially since more and more of us as users are moving to 64-bit windows, etc. Yes, it's actually quite an interesting, uh, interesting review here. So there's a company, uh, uh, matusek.com. Uh, which is a uh, company which tests uh, tests different kind of uh, of, uh, of security solutions, and they've been testing out 32-bit antivirus engines compared to 64-bit antivirus engines. And what they found out is that uh, you know 64-bit architecture is something that we're all moving against. Uh, you know, I've been running 64-bit architecture for the last couple of years. Uh, anyone who has a Windows 7 machine. Uh, they would probably have installed a 64-bit uh, bit, uh, architecture. The reason why you have to do that is because in 64-bit architecture, you can reference much more memory area. So uh, there's an upper limit on a 32-bit uh, architecture. Um, and you can also optimize the code. Uh, Mac OS, for instance, have been 64-bit natively since version 10.6 or something like that. Um, so all operating systems are moving towards 64-bit because we put more and more memory into our systems. Um, and that, of course, means that uh, it's a completely different architecture of the CPU uh, uh, CPU system on the system. And um, 
that means that the applications needs to be able to reference that CPU in a different way. And antivirus, because they have a very low, uh, they connect on a very low level in the CPU because they need to basically be able to scan files before they reach the applications and these kind of things, scan files before they go into memory. Um, they, of course, have an even even uh, broader difference when it comes to 64-bit. And interestingly enough, they haven't been able to do it good enough yet on 64 compared to what they've done on 32. And that's, of course, a bit of a worry. And um, since, as you said, more and more of us are moving to 64, um, th it's true, right, that software running that's for 32 doesn't necessarily run in 64 and vice versa. I know on my Mac, for example, it's happened a few times that I run application and it says something about 32 and 64, you have to reboot and things. Yes, exactly. And the, the, the reason why it's doing that, you know, typically a 32-bit application, if you run a 32-bit application on a 64-bit system, what will happen is that you, you, you will run that application in an emulator. That happens natively in the system. But you will basically make the application think that it's talking to a 32-bit mm -hmm. uh, processor. Okay. So that's an overhead, and that also takes more time. So, you know, you should run your applications natively 64 if you can. If they're available in 64 and you're running a 64-bit system, make sure you install the 64-bit version. So let's hope security software catches up with the the, the trend to 64-bit to systems. Huh? I'm, I'm uh, sure, I'm sure. Um, Another thing, well, let, let's move to another thing, which is related to the main topic of today, which we haven't mentioned, but that's kind of that's online banking and how to say, stay safe when you do your online banking and, and similar kind of tasks. But here, here's a story that you picked out from, uh, it's, it's on Computer World, but it's by IDG News Service, and it talks about um, banking malware that can um, watch you, uh, the user, through webcam the webcam on your computer and listen to you through the microphone on the computer. That that sounds pretty scary, a little bit kind of big brother-ish. Yes, that's correct. And, uh, um, you know, the reason why these kind of, so again, it's about the sophistication of the malware that's out there. Um, uh, you know, typically malwares could not do these kind of things simply because you had to distribute to advanced code. So that means that the code would be easy to detect in order to do these things. Um, but now, you know, the malware applications are becoming more and more, the attack frameworks are becoming more and more sophisticated. And now they actually distribute a, 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 an environment to the client machine that allows them to take over and control, for instance, the video cameras, the microphones, and all of these things. And the reason why is that um, they want to, for instance, the reason why they want to to control the microphone is that if they can control the microphone while a user is doing his normal online banking transaction, you know, sometimes some banks, they have a security system where they will call back and forth and there'll be a person asking for a specific uh, specific uh, code or something like that. So a person calling, it could also be a computer calling and then you would type in a DTMF tone. So you'd type in a number of characters, sorry, uh, uh, digits on your phone, which will give your authentication for that specific transaction that you just did in your e-banking system. So by controlling the microphone, the bad guys, they would potentially be able to get your code either if you say it on the phone or if you type digits and they can then record the DTMF tones on that specific um, phone. The video camera, that could be used if the person is receiving an SMS on the phone and he's looking at that 
uh, SMS. You know, the idea is that the video camera would then somehow catch the screen of the phone at some point so that they could get that specific code from the uh, from the SMSs. So, um, wow. so very interesting and uh, and uh, definitely giving some new problems, not yeah. just for the technical security, but really the process that the banks they have around these things. Absolutely, the two two things kind of come to mind. One, how many times haven't you you know sat in front of the computer and you enter your credit card and you you maybe look at the card and you go oh one two three four exactly. next four digits five six seven exactly. eight. <laughs> and and because the the credit card is so worn. You have to uh, like like twist it a bit in the in the yeah. in the light in order to get the the real numbers right. And so very, uh, and very often you read out the numbers to yourself also when you do it. Exactly. So, so then they have a, a audio and recording, audio exactly. and video recording. The other yeah. thing I, 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 that comes to mind immediately is that they must be collecting and they by the bad guys if we call them that they must be collecting enormous amounts of data doing these things that they need to go through. Uh, right, kind of like I guess data mining the the legit data mining companies do in a way. Yes, I'm sure, and I'm sure that they have the manpower to do that. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising for me if they have companies set up which are just doing that and nothing else. Well, but you're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, okay. One more thing then before we get to well, get back to e-banking in a way, but the main topic for the show: how to stay safe when when doing your uh, online banking. Um, another article which is on computer world smartphone security is heading for apocalypse um, uh, th- we, we've touched upon this many times malware and security issues with smartphones and tablets are increasing yes uh, well this is basically this specific article the reason why I pulled it out is because of a um, a number of things and um, and really it's it's about how smartphones are built um, and if you're looking at how smartphones are built today, they, of course, take some different kind of, of um, uh, components on them. And one of the components that's very, very important in any kind of phone is the baseband component. That's basically the, let's call it the physical piece of hardware that connects your phone to the GSM network. And, and most smartphones systems are, are using uh, a specific, uh, let me see what the name is called here. Um, they're using a specific uh, uh, baseband component. And because we have these, the, and, and that baseband component is already vulnerable. And it's, it's, it's been known to be vulnerable for a long, long time. Um, and then the, the concept around this article is that you can use that vulnerability in the baseband. Uh, and while the smartphones are so advanced, you can use that for some very, very advanced uh, attacks on on those specific phones. Um so potentially just by you connecting your smartphone into the GSM network, you would be vulnerable to attacks, no matter how well the operating system is patched or anything like that, because it's a, a real hardware component that's actually weak. It's not a software component on the phone. Wow. Still a, a, a relatively theoretical attack, but, uh, but you could definitely see it, uh, see it happening. Um, it's quite important to understand that uh, you know, when you talk on your phone, there are encryption within the TSM protocol, but that has been broken for the last ten years. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's not secure, and and uh, and the reason why nothing has been done about it is because it's extremely expensive to fix this. So right now, the security you have in in, in, in TSM communication is the fact that there's so many people using it at the same time. Wow. 
Okay. Doesn't doesn't make you feel very safe, <laughs> unfortunately. No. Well, I know that. I think it was was uh, the was it Prince Charles in the UK who once had his GSM phone tapped uh, using these kind of vulnerabilities in the GSM network. Okay. So um, yeah. Uh, not not very good news, unfortunately. Then, but um, let, let's hope the uh, the industry, I guess, as a whole, come together and and try to address this um, yes. issue. Okay, those are some of the uh, kind of the the current headlines that we've um, um, w- wanted to talk about. So let's move on to the the, the main topic of the show. Then, uh, how to stay secure when doing your e banking. Um, something that a lot of us are doing more and more um, in, in different parts of the world. Even banks are closing down offices, so you have to go online. Uh, I know here in Sweden, for example, banks are increasingly not dealing with cash, so it's it's getting harder to even get cash from a bank office. You can get it from ATM, but going into the bank office and doing something cash transaction-wise is getting harder, so you have to do stuff online. Which has a whole other set of issues with, well, what if you don't have a computer and those kinds of things. But that, that's not the topic we wanted to talk about. No. But when you do this, when you go online to your bank, you want to check your account status, whatever it might be. How do you stay safe and what are some good practices for, for you to kind of keep in mind? That's yes. what we wanted to talk about. Exactly. So, um, you know, I'm, I use e-banking all the time and I, I thought about, you know, how do I specifically... Uh, protect myself when I use e-banking. Um, and actually, it, it, it came because one of my friends, he was connecting to his e-banking while he was sitting in a cafe uh, here in Dubai, and he was connecting on a you know, a network in that cafe. They had a Wi-Fi network. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one of the interesting things about a Wi-Fi network is that in a cafe, it's typically unencrypted. So that means that people with the right kind of technology could potentially sniff, could potentially intercept your traffic and then do certain things to it so you know we started discussing about good good online behavior let's call it some good tips for a normal user on how he can protect himself yeah so um what i I would like to cover here so the first thing you know it's about phishing phishing is very very uh, dominant within the uh, within the banking uh, sector Uh, or let's put it another way the banking sector has been a big target for phishing. So um, there's different kind of phishing. There's uh, email phishing, there's web phishing. You know, the, the idea about, about it is that a, an attacker will try to get you to do something with the information that you have in the bank. Um, so, you know, when you sign up with a bank, it might be a very good idea to try to talk to them and understand how will they communicate with you. There's almost no banks in the world. I, I really hope that there's no banks. I hope that they're longer, far, further than this. There's no banks in the world who will ever ask you to put in your credit card details or anything like that in anything else than the e-banking system. Um, another thing a bank will, will, will never do, they will never, never send you emails with links that you have to click or anything like that. Um, so they will really try to make sure that when they communicate with you, it's going to be a one-way communication, and it's just going to tell you uh, if there's a message that you need to have, please go and, and read this message within your e-banking system. Mm-hmm. Because inside the e-banking system, all banks, they have a secure way of communicating with you because you authenticate before you actually communicate with them. Um, so that's a key point. Understand how your bank communicates with you. Simply ask them. Most banks, they even put this on their website so that you have information about how would they communicate with you. 
anything that falls outside of this communication flow, simply disregard it. I should also, I, I would also want to add something as simple as regular phone calls from your bank. Uh, it, it may happen that somebody calls and say, hey, I'm from, from this bank, but if you don't recognize the number, or if you can't call them back on that number, uh, yes. and somehow get to a switchboard that identifies that it is the bank, then you should probably not talk to, those, that, to that person. That's correct. But I have to say something like a, uh, a caller identification number uh, that can also be uh, be, uh, be be changed. Yeah. So I would actually say that uh, you know again, uh, if you're if you're feeling if a bank calls you and asks you some questions on the phone, please tell them uh, send me an email in my e-banking system or the messaging system that is in the e-ma- uh, yeah. e-banking system. Get that message, and then you can call them back because yeah. no one will have. Access to that specific e-banking system, exactly. unless it's the bank. So, or, or I guess you yeah. could call them back if you know the number to a contact person, yes, and you right. know that that is a verified number and person, and, and person, so you know them. Then you can call them back on that number, but don't, especially don't start talking personal details on, on a on a line when you don't know for hundred percent sure that exactly. who is calling. Exactly. Um, another thing I th- I think is quite important. Uh, you know, f- so we talked a bit about where do you connect from. Really, you should not connect on certain kind of networks. So if you're inside a, a cafe and you're sitting there with your laptop and, and you're connecting into your e-banking system, well, don't do it because that network that you're on, you're not controlling. So you might have, if you're in a cafe, you're connecting to an unencrypted wireless network. It means that other people, even though your traffic is encrypted, they can still see your traffic. So on certain networks, you should simply not do your banking business. So wait until you get home. Wait until you're on a connection that you trust, and then you can start using your uh, uh, using your e-banking system. Which leads me to an, to another point as well, yep. which is use your own laptop. You know, I have so many people who've been hacked or something like that on their e-banking system after they've been using a PC that they borrowed in an internet cafe somewhere which is it's just plain stupid because an internet cafe PC, you've got no idea what's running on that. There could be software key loggers, there could be hardware key loggers and all of these different kind of things. So when you use your e-banking from a bank, or sorry, from a PC that you do not trust, you know, you're just asking for trouble. Um, another point, and that's probably more down to how you use your banking system yourself is that, um, uh, you know, I have a very nice browsing system on my, on my machine. I have, I'm using Firefox myself. They already gave a bit of information about, about myself. But Firefox, I like it. They have this very nice feature that you can open multiple windows and multiple tabs on the same PC. That's, of course, clever because now I can sit and I can have my Facebook running on one tab. I can have my show notes in another tab and I could be reading the news of something else in a, in a third tab and in the fourth tab I could log into my e-banking system but that's a terrible idea. The reason being is that most browsers they are, they are vulnerable to what's called cross-site or cross-browser request forgery um, and that basically means that if I'm logged into my e-banking system from the browser perspective that specific session could be injected with data from another tab or another window on, on my browser. Mm-hmm. So if a, if a hacker, he managed to get me to go to a website, 
so let's say someone sent me a message on Facebook and said, hey, Nikolai, please go to this link. And that link would be with, you know, a, a, an image would have an embedded attack in it or something like that. And I was locked into my e-banking system at the same time. I could actually run a script or he could run a script from that specific link that he sent me to to do stuff in my e-banking system. Mm-hmm. So this is a quite common uh, type of attack. It's also sometimes referred to as a client-side uh, client-side script attack. Um, so really a key point is to make sure that when you do your e-banking, you only have one browser window open, and that is the e-banking browser window. You don't have any other browser instances opened. You don't have any other tabs. You don't do anything else than just your e-banking uh, at the same time. Um, so that's another good uh, uh, basic uh, security uh, point. Um, another one, yeah? Uh, could we, could, could we, maybe you're getting to this, but could we take a step back kind of uh, because different banks have different systems for uh, authenticating you when you log in. I know I have a, this little box. I have to, the, the website gives me a number. Uh, yes. I put it in the box and I get another number. I put that back into the website. We, that, to me, that seems, at least as in, in terms of authenticating me, it seems very hard um, f- for somebody to, to kind of break into yes. in, in a sense but there are yes. other ways uh should yes. you for example accept a bank that where you just log in with username and password or should you somehow there should be another component to it somehow well that's a very very good point and actually i'm sorry that we didn't cover that straight away that's about the physical security of the e-banking system um because you know many banks they they, they have de- de- developed systems where you have this what you are referring to is what's called a two-factor authentication system. So a two-factor authentication system is is based about something you have and something you are. So you are logging in and something you know as well. So you're logging in with uh, your user credentials, so that's something you are, and then you have something. And that means that they can challenge that specific thing. So that means that when you type in your, your, your code, you know, you are getting authenticated against them, but they are also being authenticated against you. Mm-hmm. Um, and many banks today, of course, this is from a security perspective, fantastic, specifically because these kind of passwords are only valid once. So that means that once you've signed into your e-banking system, you know, the next time you sign in, you're, you'll get a brand new code. And that means that, let's say that you, uh, you cannot lose that specific password. You can lose the physical hardware device. But uh, that one you have to log into as well, mm-hmm. and uh, and that means that that if you were to to you know next time if you logged in on an on an e-banking system from an internet cafe let's 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 say that you had done that, you know, even if you typed in your password, no one would be able to replicate it because they do not have this physical one-time password device, yeah. and that's from a security perspective a very very good approach, but unfortunately it's also quite expensive for the banks to do that. That's why a lot of banks, specifically for the consumer banking, they have decided to say, well, you know what, we're just going to use a username and password. Specifically in the Middle East, that's exactly how it's done. And um, and that, of course, means that the username and password to your bank can be replayed, uh, which is a very, very bad approach. So should you decide to accept a bank or not based on this? It depends. You know, if you're in Europe, you have very, very good consumer rights. If someone steals your password, you still only have to cover a certain amount of, of uh, uh, 
of, of lost money, uh, where if it's in other places of the world, the consumer rights are, uh, are less uh, are less strong, and then, of course, it makes sense to look into these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, I have many discussions with banks about these specific things, and for a bank, it's business. You know, They're looking into how much does it cost us to run this one-time password system compared to what is the risk that we're associating to it, to, have, to just having a normal username and password. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's often the accountants that wins and not the security <laughs> guys. Oh, boy. Yeah. The, the from a consumer point of view, I understand if you know if um, if a system is more expensive to the bank, ultimately I am gonna pay for it somehow as a customer. But yes. uh, for sure, I also don't want my information to be you know out there or be vulnerable. So I yes. I, I think a lot of people, I assume a lot of people would be willing to pay a little bit to to make sure that you know their e-banking is really really safe. Yes, I think on, ultimately this is about protecting your online identity at the end of the day because an e-banking system is also about online identity. At the end of the day, if the companies cannot fix this or if the banks cannot fix this, it's becoming an issue that the state has to fix. And, you know, with, you're seeing that in different kind of countries. I come from Denmark myself. Um, and uh, in Denmark, there's a system called... Um, I can't even, it's called NEMID, and that specific system is basically, it's a it's a company that for the state have generated a one-time password system that any citizen in Denmark will have associated with them. Okay. So that means that, that the different kind of e-banking systems, they can now subscribe to this different kind of services from this company to do one-time passwords. And you use that same kind of authentication infrastructure for all of your uh, e-government uh, communication, your e-banking communication, and even private companies. So something like, an, let's say, an online shop could use exactly the same information on exactly the same authentication framework. And that, of course, is extremely powerful. And I, and I think that will happen more and more in the future. That is actually becoming an issue of state security instead of just you know, authentication to a specific e-bank mm-hmm. uh, as the threat uh, uh, picture evolves over time mm, interesting so it, it it becomes such a big issue that basically government has to step in and, and yes and solve it and it, it can be associated a lot with your um, you know most governments they if they haven't already done it they're doing it right now they have this concept of an of an electronic id for every uh, citizen yeah you know you can definitely tie these kind of services into that specific kind of uh, of electronic id um, so there's a lot of benefits in these kind of, of frameworks, but it's slow and the development will be slow. In Denmark, it took them 10 years to do it. Uh, you know, so maybe in 10 years when we talk about the same thing, <laughs> it'll be a different discussion. Yeah. Okay, I, t- I took you off track a little bit, but, uh, yes. but l- let's get back onto, okay. it, onto the, uh, onto the uh, track. <laughs> yes, I, yes, so really there's only two more things to cover. Uh, of course, or three things. Of course, you also need to make sure that when you communicate to your e-bank that the SSL certificate, you should really know what SSL is, or at least from a basic perspective, you should know what SSL is. Mm-hmm. So SSL is an encryption that happens between your browser and your e-banking system. Um, and that means that it's a communica- an encryption that's happening between the client and the bank server. And for that, they use a certificate. And that certificate is signed by what's called a certificate authority. 
there's different kind of certificate authorities out there. There's VeriSign, there's uh, GeoTrust. You have different kinds of, of systems that, that can deliver these kind of certificates. So you should really make sure that you understand which kind of certificate your bank is using. So most banks, they will actually give you the information about their certificates or their public key. They can provide you with the information of how that certificate would look. Um, and if you understand that, you can relatively easy, you know, typically you have to click on uh, on a small, uh, what do you call it, a small uh, lock in order to get the information of the certificate. And you can then identify if the communication partner that you're talking to, the e-banking system, is actually signed with the correct certificate. Mm-hmm. If they change that certificate, don't communicate with them. So, you know, of course, certificates need to be renewed. But if a bank uh, renews the certificate, typically there would be a communication around this. Um, so really that's a, a good point as well to always verify when you log into the e-banking system or actually even before you log, when you just start up the browser and write HTTPS dot, uh, sorry, HTTPS ebanking.bank.com. Mm-hmm. Already at that point, before you type your username and password, you can see the specific certificate. If they're moving you to a non-encrypted so just a normal HTTP connection, just close your browser straight away because then it's not the bank you're talking to or the e-banking system you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Good. And then, um, you know, think about the platform that you're using for, for doing e-banking on. If you use your normal PC, make sure you run an, a virus, uh, antivirus. Uh, don't make sure you run a virus. Make sure you run an antivirus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make, make sure that that antivirus is updated. Make sure that you trust it, right? Uh, that, you know, maybe it's not the free version from Russia that you need to run. But uh, maybe because online security is important for you, maybe you should spend the $40 it costs per year to run an antivirus uh, and, and run that. Um, make sure you run an operating system that's patched. So a lot of people, even though with Microsoft's uh, focus on these kind of things, it's less, a lot of people run pirated software. So that means that when you have pirated software, it might not be possible for you to update the system. And that's, of course, a very, very bad approach. Because if you have a system which is not updated, no matter which antivirus system that you're running, if you run the best antivirus system in the world, you might still be vulnerable to some very, very easy attacks on your system which ultimately ends up infecting your system. Um, So really make sure that you update your system on a frequent basis. Um, And then if you want to be very, very secure, I've read a very good article recently that the most secure e-banking environment is actually a tablet PC. Uh And the reason why a tablet PC is very, very secure, and specifically it's one tablet PC, it's the the iPad from, uh, from Apple, the reason why that is very, very secure is that there's a very, very strong control of the software which is installed on the tablet PC. Uh, and you actually have this, uh, even though they say that they can multitask and run multiple tasks at the same time, there's only very, very few tasks which are allowed to run in the background on an iOS device. So, uh, so that's a very secure platform to do your e-banking on because you cannot run a malware at the same time, or at least there's no known, known malware. Uh, that can run if you install it from the uh, if you only use the Apple Store to install software from. It's good that you bring that up because I was actually going to ask you that because you you, you talked about uh, mainly at least uh, doing e-banking on a PC on, on a computer as as we know them. But then the question would be well, increasingly we're doing things from our smartphones and tablets. 
So Correct. usually, at least, it, it, it comes in the form of an app. From, yes. uh, which should be from your you know, banking institution, your bank, um, but may not be. And we, we talk about this a lot on the show, um, uh, especially the, the Android store, uh, Google Play now, which has issued, uh, issues with fake apps and things. Yes, exactly. But, you know, I have to say in the Apple store, the number of fake, uh, fake apps, they can probably, yeah. over time, can probably be counted on your hands and your feet. Yeah. Uh, sorry, yes. Uh, so it's 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 really a, a low low number, right? We're probably yeah. talking in the low tens or or, or sorry, like that, uh, something like that. It's 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 they have a very strong authentication framework for new software that goes yeah. on there, um, and that's of course something we as consumers can benefit from in this specific case. Uh, um, Android, I would be. You know, depending on how your usage is on Android, if you don't install that many new applications or if you trust the application that's being installed from the Play Store, you know, that's fine. But if you try to install applications from other kinds of, of sources, then you should be a bit yeah. more, more careful. The, uh, the, uh, the, the kind of the side effect of trying to do your e-banking on, on your tablet, uh, I think especially on iPad, is that not all banking websites are going to be supported in terms of they don't support the mobile safari, they don't support, or mobile safari doesn't support the JavaScript that's required or the Java that's required or what might be. So you might, you might run into those problems instead. Yes, that's correct. But I have to say, you know, all banks that I talk to, they all have a program in place for how to get mobile banking up and running. Good. Uh, uh, of course, with the iPad devices, you have a different problem, and that is that you can easily lose them you know i have my ipad along with me every single day and yep. uh, you know you could easily uh, more easily uh, lose it so you know that's another point about these devices but if you if you're looking looking on the physical security on the device itself that's actually quite good yeah I mean, what you can do then is um, make sure that you have the like on the iPad, you can have a four-digit code set, so it'll Correct. be it'll be very hard for somebody to to break yeah. in, even if you. But lose make it. sure that when you set the four-digit code, that you also set the iPad to to self-destruct if it's typed ten times wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because that's another point with the pin codes today. If you set it just like that, you know, you can also you can you can do it. Uh, you can type in the pin code as many times yeah. as possible. So, so, so. It'll, be, it'll be like in um, Mission Impossible. It will exactly. go up in smoke. Exactly. exactly. Okay, anything final down to add about e-banking um, before we wrap up? I think that was a lot of good uh, good things that um, we should all think about when we, when we do our e-banking. Sure. No, well, I, I see, you know, e-banking, it's a good thing in, in, in many ways, right? It's flexible, it's easy. Uh, ultimately, you know, I think e-banking is as secure as if you go into a physical branch. It's not from that perspective. It's this, this, there's nothing wrong. In it. You just need to be aware that it is a different world out there, and you need mm -hmm. to protect yourself when you're doing e-banking. Okay. Yeah, as I said, a lot of good tips, um, suggestions for what to think about when you do your banking online, um, which is extremely convenient, and more and more banks are moving that way. So. It's almost like whether you like it or not, you will have to move this direction because banks are moving in this direction. So just get with the program in a sense, and, uh, and, uh, but stay safe doing it. Absolutely. Okay, thanks very much, Nikolai, for another great yeah. show. This um, will be up on the site in a little bit. Thanks for those who are listening. If you have any feedback for us, uh, connect with us. There are, if you go to royal.pingdom.com, there's all different kinds of information there about sending us a tweet, uh, email. You can leave a comment on the site. Uh, there's also 
uh, link there to Nikolai's uh, Twitter handle so you can uh, get in touch with him if you like. So thanks very much, Nikolai. Uh, talk You're to very you. welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.